You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. The lack of curiosity about America by so many Americans is something that I was hoping I might try and reverse with this book, which I would like to think sort of will rekindle a sense of curiosity and then enthusiasm and then optimism. Journalist Simon Winchester today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Well, on the 4th of July... Most of the attention gets paid to the men, yes, they were mostly men, who founded the United States of America, and rightfully so. But the actual process of uniting the states didn't end with the Declaration of Independence. Indeed, it was just beginning. Actually creating a nation out of multiple independent states required infrastructure, not just a political statement. And that has taken more than two centuries, and it's still in progress. In his 2013 book, The Men Who United the States, journalist Simon Winchester took a deeper dive into innovations, innovations as diverse as the telegraph, the interstate highway system, transcontinental railroad, even the internet. The irony, of course, being that Simon Winchester was born in the very country from whom we declared our independence. So here now, from 2013, Simon Winchester. One of the main reasons I appreciate a book like yours... Maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, whatever your country of origin is, it takes somebody to sometimes make me step back for a moment and realize just what has gone into the making of this country that I sometimes take for granted. We all take for granted now the interstate highway system. We take for granted the electric grid, the Internet, all these things that have, in fact, united these states. That's one of the extraordinary things to me about America. When I, I mean, I've been here working as a correspondent. I hitchhiked around it in the, when I was 17, 18-year-old, eternally fascinated by this country. And yet, when I go to the more obscure places, as an example, I was recently in the Canyon de Chey in eastern Arizona, beautiful place full of I mean, stunning cliffs and a dry riverbed that you go on a horse along, and there are these Anasazi dwellings which were built in the 7th century AD, all of a hugely important part of American history. I was the only American there. There were Italians, there were Germans, there were Swedes, and there was me, then a Brit. And I was thinking, why aren't Americans curious about their own country? And it is something that I came across in the research for this book. I mean, for instance, the, the terribly important place, there's an obelisk outside a little town in Ohio called East Liverpool, which marks what's known as the point of origin, from which all of the western lands were surveyed following Jefferson's, what was known as the Land Ordinance of 1785, which gave Americans the right to own land. You'd think that that point of beginning, which is marked by an obelisk, would be, there would be parking for hundreds of coaches, there would be an air-conditioned interpretive centre, Every school child east of the Mississippi would at one stage in his or her life be taken to see the point of beginning. Not at all. Nobody stops. No one even, or very few people even in East Liverpool themselves, know that it exists and it's covered with graffiti and litter and it's just bypassed. So the lack of curiosity about America by so many Americans is something that I was hoping I might try and reverse with this book, which I would like to think sort of will, in some people anyway, rekindle a sense of curiosity and then enthusiasm and then optimism about the future of this country. Because Americans are very down on their country at the moment, and and I'm not. I'm a new American, and I love this place. Well, I think every American will find some 
personal connection somewhere in the pages of this book. I grew up in a house less than a quarter mile from the Illinois and Michigan Canal, which you write about. I live now within a stone's throw of the, uh, the what was the the original section of the uh, the the first interstate highway. You know, and, and from don't live in Cumberland, but I'm close enough to the the, the, the highway. All all these kinds of things that I think, you know, when people read your book, they say, I didn't know about that, about the place where I grew up, the place I live now, the place I've visited. All these kinds of things, the hidden history. Well, I'm so glad you said that. And Tom Brokaw, who read the book early on, said this was looking at America from the ground up, which Mm -hmm. is essentially what you're saying. And I'm really pleased that 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 may be the case in point. I... I'm sort of fascinated by the the, the details, the delicate brushstrokes of the making of this great portrait that is America. I mean, one of the things that I found droll and amusing in light of the recent political shenanigans that have been going on in Washington, when I was researching the history of bringing electricity to the farms in this country, and you, you may know that in the 1930s, although electricity was distributed in nearly all, in fact, I think all of the big cities and most of the small towns, there was all, essentially for 800,000 farmers in America, no electricity at all. And yet, of course, they were being asked to produce food in enormous quantities because the population had grown so gigantic. So it was FDR who decided, among many other things, as part of the New Deal, to create this agency, the Rural Electrification Administration, which brought, its mission was to bring electricity to the farmers that were hitherto ignored by the capitalist electric companies. The first ever farms to be given or sold this electricity in 1935 to be connected to the grid were in western Ohio, a place called Miami, Ohio, because that was the local Native American tribe that lived there. Miami, Ohio is in the 8th Congressional District of Ohio, a constituency now represented by John Boehner, the most the archetype of anti-big government. And yet his constituency profited hugely, benefited hugely from the biggest government that America's ever known. You could look at the, all the pages of your book, how the interstate highway has advanced our economy, how communication from this telegraph to television and radio, the Internet, how everything that you're describing has in one way or another built in a tangible way what we now take for granted. Well, that's sort of what I wanted the book to be about. I mean, when I was fixating on the word united and how has America managed to remain, uh, despite obviously the unfortunate the of the Civil War in the 1860s, how it has remained united in a way that other great national entities are not. I mean, look at Canada, a wonderful country, and yet there is this grumpy, big francophone mass of Quebec in the middle of it. Look at Russia, how it's broken apart after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Look at Europe, where I'm originally from, where you know, I don't, Britain doesn't use the euro. Switzerland's not a member of it. If you try and plug in your electric shaver in Stockholm, you'll need a different plug from the one in Madrid. They're all jabbering away at each other in different languages. And yet in America, which is this great polyglot nation full of every imaginable creed and color and persuasion, it's united and has remained so. But what I didn't want to do was to concentrate really on the abstract ideas, you know, democracy, human rights, the language. Um, But I did want to look at the physical links that are so gigantic, so much bigger than anywhere else in in the world, really. I mean, the interstate highway system that you mentioned is the biggest construction project in world history. 
Um, how did this all come about and how did the country knit itself together and remain so knitted? And again, just as an example, a, a, if I may coin the pun, a concrete example of how we take things for granted, you, you write about how uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, not long after the First World War, Let's just see how long it can take our troops to get to the West Coast. 58 days! Extraordinary. I mean, there were no roads west of Omaha. And these, this three-mile-long convoy of tanks and armoured cars and commissary vehicles and ambulances and jeeps that set off to, theoretically to head off a threat from what happened if the Japanese invaded California. Well, as you mentioned, by the time they got there, 58 days later, at an average speed of less than six miles an hour, the Japanese would have taken California, Arizona, New Mexico, probably been nibbling away at Texas, which might, of course, be no bad thing, but well, forget I said that. But um, no, it's, it's, uh, this convinced Eisenhower, who was a young major at the time, sent along on this convoy as an observer and who kept a diary, and which I, one of the most interesting trips for this book was I took his diary and followed in his footsteps all the way. And he's essentially reading between the lines, said, if I ever get into a position of authority, and of course in 1919 he never supposed he'd ever be president, um, I will make sure that America's got a road system that, that a, a country of such commercial potential deserves and demands. I might say parenthetically that one of the places I went to on this trip was the town of Denison, Iowa. And Eisenhower and that convoy, they played football with the residents of Denison, Iowa, and I think beat them or were beaten by them, I forget. But the reason I wanted to go to Denison and had for years, it was at the birthplace of the woman that I always thought as a teenager, and still do to an extent today, think of the most beautiful woman that ever lived. She was born Donna Mullinger in Denison, Iowa, but her stage name was Donna Reed. And anyone that's seen It's a Wonderful Life, surely if you've got red blood in your veins, you have to think she's one of the most wonderful creatures in creation. I wouldn't even begin to argue with you about that. <laughs> After this short break, how a failed artist became one of our most important inventors. Back to my 2013 interview with Simon Winchester. You take even stories that we thought we knew well, the Samuel Morse story of the invention of the telegraph, and retell it in a way that makes us, that gives us a new appreciation for just how groundbreaking and how precedent-setting this was at the time. Well, Samuel Morse, I mean, a very sad character in a way. He was an artist, a good one by, I don't know if you're a wonderful artist, but I'm certainly not. I mean, I look at what he's done and I think he was an incredibly talented man, but not talented enough to be awarded the contract to do the painting on the inside of the Capitol Dome. While he was bidding for this and losing it, his wife fell very ill in New York. He went back as rapidly as he could, found that she had already expired and thought to himself, my gosh, if only I had known earlier went off to France to lick his wounds and to um, sort of deal with his unhappiness, failed to get another of painting contracts over there, came back on a ship to America, and on the ship, crossing costs, you know, took 17 or 18 days, fell into conversation with an electrical engineer. And he had enough grounding in science from his early college days to understand what this engineer was talking about. And he came up with the idea that the spark that is created by a brief interruption of an electrical circuit could be transmitted, that little blip it makes, 
along a wire. And that was the beginning of the telegraph and then the Morse code that he invented. So we think of him as, a, as an electrical engineer who made a code and a telegraph that was one of the groundbreaking inventions of all time, patent US 1647, hugely important document. But he was, in fact, a frustrated painter, and I think most of us forget that. We have the Transcontinental Railroad. I remember as a schoolboy, again, you brought back memories. One of the, my favorite books from when I was in elementary school was a book detailing the construction of the Transcontinental Railroad. And you brought back the excitement of that in this book. It was an amazing event. And, of course, it couldn't have happened but for this rather strange and some say sort of rather possibly slightly mad man called Theodore Judah, who was the son of a Connecticut preacher, um, who lived in California, became absolutely determined that there should be a transcontinental railroad, but how could that railroad breach the great formidable wall of the Sierra Nevada mountains when he was the one that was taken up walking in the hills by someone who lived up there who said, I think I've found the route, and that, of course, was the Donner Pass. And the moment he saw the Donner Pass, he realized that that was the way the railway should go. And so he put into into place, you know, with the help, huge financial help of the, the big four, you know, Crocker and Huntington, all those good people, um, that the railway should be built. And so the Central Pacific set out from Sacramento going east, and the Union Pacific set out from Omaha going west, and they met in 1869 in this great ceremony at Promontory Summit. And when the telegraph signal, of course, Morse again, was sent out announcing the fact that the two rails had been joined, then church bells rang out across the country. And, of course, a journey that had taken the pioneers six months to undertake, you could go from New York to California in seven days. I mean, it transformed everything in a heartbeat. But poor old Judah never got to see the ceremony because he had had to come over the country the long way around, which is down by boat from San Francisco to Panama, cross the Isthmus of Panama by land, and then join another boat to take him to New York. He was stung by a mosquito, caught malaria, and died. So the man who created it all is both forgotten and didn't attend the ceremony. Well, I'm hoping that many of the people that we have forgotten, that history has passed by, even if their invention is named after them, as in McAdam, mm -hmm. will once again get their due. I hope so too. I mean, McAdam, extraordinary man who... Um, said that roads built of boulders or planks of wood simply wouldn't uh, stand up to the kind of traffic that the new America was getting. So did these experiments and came up with the idea that a pebble that would fit in your mouth, if you could chip rocks until they would fit in your mouth and then lay thousands of them, they would be compacted by the wheels of the vehicles going across. And so that became a macadam road, which was the basis of all early American roads. And then, of course, in the early part of this last century, someone decided that to cut down the dust, they'd put tar on top of it, and that became tarmacadam, which is, of course, tarmac. So these people are generally forgotten, and I hope that if this book does anything at all, it'll be to revive the memory of and the interest in people who our unsung heroes in the uniting of this country. Before we close, I wanted to let you mention that you've organized the book by the five classic elements, but you were inspired, apparently, by your mother-in-law. That's an extraordinary story. Uh, my mother-in-law, um, my, my wife is Japanese. Obviously, my mother-in-law, therefore, is Japanese, and she was celebrating her 80th birthday in New York, and we had arranged a big and formal dinner in a rather nice restaurant in uh, central Manhattan, 
we'd taken a room in the hotel above the restaurant to uh, people to leave their coats and to uh, for the birthday cake and so forth. So on the way down, my wife and I went to see the elderly couple to wish them a happy, or her a happy birthday. And I happened to tell her that I had organized this book according to the five classical elements of wood, earth, water, fire and metal. She went into the bedroom, wrote them on a card in Chinese characters, in Japanese and in English, and presented it to me in the formal way the Japanese like to do these things. Then we all gathered a couple of hours later for the birthday party, a beautiful Japanese dinner. We went upstairs. The old lady blew out her candles on her cake. We had uh, uh, bottles of Dom Perignon to toast everybody. The children showed a video of the highlights in her life thus far. Um, she had made a speech. Her English wasn't good, but she'd been practicing at walking around Central Park all day. She then went round the room, hugging everyone in the room, about 14 or 15 of us, sat down on the sofa and dropped dead. I mean, if you think about it, actually the best possible way to drop dead, surrounded by friends and family. But that piece of paper, that card, was the last thing she ever wrote in her life, which sort of, for me, cemented my, you know, the reason for doing the book like that. And so I was able to dedicate the book to my wife, but also to her as a, as a small memorial to a, a remarkable 80-year-long life. Now you can get your copy of The Men Who United the States by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my 1989 interview with historian Richard Schenkman. The British, during the Revolution, wanted to discredit George Washington. So they kind of made a joke about George Washington and his bad teeth. Americans were impressed by it, and to this day, they like to joke about it, too. And my 2005 conversation with esteemed historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. In Lincoln's hands, the qualities that we normally associate with decency, with a good person, sensitivity and honesty and empathy and kindness, became great political resources. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Please subscribe today if you haven't already. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything... Apropos to today's interview about great innovations and inventors, the story of another immigrant who came to the U.S. nearly seven decades ago and helped change the world. My 2001 interview with former Intel CEO Andy Grove. My name in Hungarian was spelled G-R-O-F, and it's pronounced Grove. And everybody looked at G-R-O-F and pronounced it Grof. And that, that didn't sound like me, and I wanted them to say my name the right way. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.